You're listening to Plenary Session. On this bonus episode of Plenary Session, I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Emerson Chen. Emerson is the Chief Fellow in Hematology Oncology at OHSU's Hemonc Fellowship Program, and he is the author of a new paper out yesterday in JAMA Internal Medicine. He's here to discuss the findings of that paper and what it took to get the project done. You won't want to miss this bonus episode. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience, and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate, and if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally, if you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ for this special bonus episode with Dr. Emerson Chen. Emerson Chen is Chief Fellow here at OHSU. He's an aspiring GI oncologist. He is literally on the cusp of graduation and about to be a faculty member who I know is going to go on to do great things. Emerson, thank you so much for joining us here in Plenary Session HQ. I'm really glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. I see you have a thick stack of papers in your hand because we're going to talk about a recent paper you did. And I've warned you against reading off that piece of paper. <laughs> so I'm going to confiscate it in a second. No. Well, I like to be prepared. Yeah, and, and that's why I think that's why I like you so much because you've always been prepared. Now, let me tell listeners a little bit about your background. You did your undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley. You went on to do your medical school at the University of Miami. Is that the Miller College of Medicine? Is that right? Yeah, Miller School of Medicine. The Miller School of Medicine. Then you went to the University of Pennsylvania, where you did your internal medicine residency. You came from Penn here to OHSU. You joined us about three years ago, where you were a hematology oncology fellow. Then in the last year, you were bestowed with the great, great honor of being elected chief fellow. Is that right, Emerson? Yeah, it's been a great opportunity to be involved with the teaching uh, of the Hemon Fellow education here. And you've done a good job with that. You run this conference um, where occasionally, uh, when some faculty members drone on and on and on, you say something very politely like, okay, moving on, or let's move on. Do you do that from time to time? Yeah, I think it's important to, while there are many interesting points about the cases we discuss at Tumor Board, by the same time, we want to make sure that we answer the clinical question mm -hmm. and not get into too many other details that might not be related to the tumor case. Are there certain faculty that you, you do that to more often, Dr. Chen? <laughs> Well, let's just say that a lot of times uh -huh. we can get into a heated discussion uh -huh. about a case, uh -huh. uh, about the treatment decision, uh -huh. um, uh -huh. and, and sometimes we have to come back and really just focus on what is the clinical question at hand. Yes, but sometimes it's good to take a deep dive and learn a few topics, but there's always the tension, so I'm glad that someone keeps us moving along. But I do notice that sometimes when I'm talking, someone says, okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well. It's good to have you here on the plenary session stage, and we're here to talk about a new paper that came out in JAMA Internal Medicine. And this is a paper that you did. You did 
and I helped you, but not that much. No, with a little bit, but I helped you, but you did. And it's called, what is it called? What was the title that we, we had to go with? Yeah, it's called Estimation of Study Time Reduction Using Surrogate Endpoints Rather Than Overall Survival in Oncology Clinical Trials. And what we looked at is to look at all the drug registration trials uh, from 2006 to 2017 um, for all the oncology drugs. And there's been many that's been approved in in the last uh, a little bit more than um, 10 years, and certainly more in the last few years. And they're all approved based on specific endpoints and there could be either a more response rate endpoint or overall survival, Mm -hmm. and trying to categorize them into um, three types, really three types of endpoints. Three buckets. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there's a a few things to start, but let's start with that. So so you said a few things. So one, the FDA approves a lot of cancer drugs, more than they did maybe a decade ago. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. And they approve them based on different endpoints, which are measures of either a drug's activity, like does it have um, activity against a cancer, um, or measures of drug efficacy, does it make someone live longer, live better, or or clinical endpoints. Um, And you kind of think of this in three buckets. You talked about one bucket, which is this overall survival bucket, but you also put something else in the overall survival bucket, and you did so in this paper. Yeah, there's a few drugs that were approved based on uh, patient symptoms, quality of life, mm-hmm. and they're, they're uh, categorized as uh, patient-reported outcomes. And uh, the FDA do look at those endpoints as uh, direct measures as well. So because there's so few of them, they are categorized with the overall survival because they're all definite endpoints. So that's what you call the definite endpoint, the clinical endpoint, that this matters to patient endpoint bucket. You put OS, mostly OS endpoints in there, and then a few PROs and quality of life. That's correct. Okay, then the second bucket we've got in there is the sort of time to event composite endpoint bucket of which the predominant thing is progression-free survival. We love progression-free survival, wouldn't you say, Dr. Chen? Yeah, and I think when one really looks at all the different types of surrogate endpoints that we have in oncology trials, they're separated into the more proportions using response rate, for example, and then the more time-to-event endpoint, progression-free survival being one of the more common ones. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, before PFS, you know, was used very widely, there was something called TTP, which is slightly different than PFS because instead of death being an endpoint, it's a reason to be censored. But that's kind of a technical point that listeners may not bore themselves with. Okay, then the third bucket, which you've mentioned a couple times now, this is the measures of tumor shrinkage bucket. So this is your response rate bucket. So this is if I give a drug to 100 people, what percent of people have resist response, which is more than 30% shrinkage uh, measured with a confirmatory scan? Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, and definitely in the solid tumors, we use the resist criteria quite a bit. And uh, there are other similar endpoints in hemolingency where there are other uh, more pet response criteria, and certainly there are also uh, serum markers in, in, in some specific uh, hemolingencies as well, like my, a multiple myeloma. I see. So I guess um, this is good for listeners to know a little bit of this background because these are the kinds of endpoints the FDA uses for regulatory approval. The first bucket was the clinical or definitive endpoints, as you put it. These next two buckets are, to some degree, surrogate endpoints because they don't necessarily measure what people care about, but they're often thought to be stand-ins for what people care about. And I guess the other thing I'd say is that um, in the drug regulatory space, people believe there's a trade-off. On the one hand, 
if you measured overall survival all the time, you would have very little uncertainty. You would know if drugs improve survival. So the uncertainty would be low. But the time it takes to find that information out, that might be high. Um, people think that PFS might be somewhere in between and response rate might be the other way around. You have a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not these drugs will go on to improve survival. In fact, there's some noted drugs that had robust response rates that didn't improve survival. Um, but you shave time off and you can bring drugs to market faster. Would you say that that's kind of, that's the trade-off people talk about? Yeah, and certainly I think in trying to decide what type of endpoint should be the one to use for a, a trial, that's, I think, a, a subject of controversy all mm -hmm. the time. That's good. That's a good way to put it. It's a subject of controversy. But not on this podcast where I have decided what it should be. No, I think, but yes, it is the subject of, I think, perennial uh, discussion. But you're not here to resolve the controversy, nor can you, because it has to do with, I think, a complicated um, risk-benefit analysis. It has to do with values to some degree and preferences. So, I mean, I don't think there's one canonical answer in every case. But what you have done, which has never been done before, to my knowledge, is you have tried to make explicit what the trade-off is. You're trying to put a number on it. People say you save time, but how much time? They don't say. And if you look through what they've said, they don't give any references for how much time. Is that fair to say that before you looked at this question, people talk about the trade-off, but they don't put numbers on it? What do you think? Yeah, it is very interesting that that you know when, whenever we look at the statistical analysis section of every uh, landmark paper, we see the the design of the trial, the 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 sample size. But there's little that, that it's been said about, well, how long does it take to get the response rate endpoint? How long does it take to get the progression-free survival endpoint? And how long would it take to get the overall survival endpoint? We don't really see the, the time um, that's estimated from, from such paper. We're, we're just given a, a number regarding the sample size. Yeah, I think that's well put. And then the other thing about response rate that we need to tell listeners a little bit about, because they may not all know, which is that the FDA often doesn't just use a response rate. They also want to know about that DOR. Can you tell listeners what is this DOR and what are they looking for when they're looking at a DOR? Yeah, to get the duration of response is once a patient has, once a participant in the study has uh, achieved either complete response or partial response, then that response is also measured to, to make sure that that it is a lasting response. So they will record how long that response lasted for that participant. And that can be captured together so that we get a median uh, of that duration of response. Um, sometimes uh, all we needed to make sure is to make sure that it lasted at least six months or more. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and I guess the, the purpose, like the philosophical idea is that, look, we're not looking for drugs that have some ephemeral response. We want responses to be durable if we're gonna say response is a reason to bring your drug to market. I think it makes sense. But what people I think forget about it is, is that means that in many cases, you have to follow people for some period of time. It might be six months, but in some of these cases, as you have documented, the, they know the median duration of response at the time of approval, and it isn't short. It's often many, many, many months. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and and I think that's really how we can try to estimate even uh, the response rate endpoint, even though it's a proportion, we can try to estimate how long it would take to get that, not only that proportion, but also how, how long that uh, response lasted. Yeah, and uh, and you did, you did that. Now, before I go to 
and I don't want to get into all the methods because this is a quick, a quick interview because you have to run uh, because you're busier than I am these days. You have to run. So I, we're not going to get into all that, but I guess I want to get into what the takeaway message is. But before that, I wanted to ask you, um, the, the thing I want to point out to listeners is that you know, this took a lot of your time to do. I mean, this isn't the sort of thing that, you know, um, we we were talking about these issues, you know, you and I talk about these issues, and, and we, we thought about this kind of project to do. And it wasn't the kind of thing that you went out and came back Monday over the weekend and you did. It took a lot longer than that. It took a fair amount of time. You use some database software that I don't know anything about, this red cap, that you're, you're an expert in. Um, what would you say to the trainees out there who are listening, you know, how did you get the the motivation to go out and put so much of your time into trying to answer this question? What is it that, you know, it's it's easy to now, now that you've answered the question to be able to, you know, talk about it, but how did, how did you get through like actually investing the time to do it? Like, where does that come from? What What is the skill to that? I think one of the main thing is to to make sure there's a interesting research question that has never been answered and you're right when a research question has hasn't been done before and when a specific method hasn't been done before then it's important to um, to look at what the limitations might be and to try to uh, make sure that the data collection will cover uh, the li- limitations so for this project where we're looking at both the initial trials that led to FDA approval, but also looking at um, the actual publications that have um, confirmed some of those data so that we have different data sets to make sure uh, we're doing lots of double checking, triple checking. And this project certainly would not have um, been possible without also two hardworking medical students doing more double checking as well. Mm-hmm. And and who were those two students? Because let's give them the credit they deserve because I've worked at them both and they're fantastic. Yeah, so Sunil Joshi is a MD-PhD medical student here at OHSU and Audrey Tran is one of the second year medical students here at OHSU as and well. And listeners will, will know that Audrey Tran uh, is credited in the Credits of Plenary Session podcast as co-creator of the the music that we enjoy on this podcast. So that tells you something about the talents of these OHSU students. Not only are they capable of coming up with original musical scores to, dare I say, hit podcasts like Plenary Session. Uh, don't roll your eyes, Emerson. Uh, and they're able to do this kind of hard-hitting research. Uh, but I think the music is terrific on this podcast, and they did a great job with that. And, you know... Uh, uh, Audrey did a great job with this paper. Um, so, okay, so you you believed in the question, and that's how you got the motivation. You worked with good people who were able to, you know, help you double check, triple check, um, and and you're a meticulous person, which is I think what listeners, um, you know, don't know about you that I know about you, which is that you are a meticulous person and you care about the details and you want to do this right, and that's why when people read this paper, they will see there's not just one or two kind of sensitivity analyses around this. You have an original trials data set. You have a, you have a long-term follow-up trials data set. You have analyzed duration of response with different kind of criteria to kind of measure what might different implications be if you over overlay the enrollment period with the duration period. And you know, I don't want to get into all these little technical details, but I just want to say this took a lot of time. And so my hat's off um, you know, to you, to Audrey, to Sunil. Um, so I guess I wanted to say the takeaway message you find is that when people bring drugs to market, um, prior studies suggest that the preclinical 
development time, the pre-market development time is something median 7.3 years to bring a drug to market. We have to do phase one testing, phase two testing, all this stuff. And, and one-thirds of the drugs come to market based on that first bucket, that clinical endpoint bucket. A third come to market based on that time to event, surrogate bucket, the PFS bucket. And a third come to market based on the response rate bucket, roughly. And what you find is that if we made all of these buckets, the OS bucket, that would be associated with how much time would it take if we were to kind of move in that OS direction? What's the association look like? Yeah, so in our multivariate analysis, then we would estimate that it would only speed the completion of the trials by about 11 months, uh, looking at across this data set. And I think it's really to recognize that there are a number of very famous trials that we see uh, in New England Journal of Medicine where even though they use overall survival as an endpoint, they're able to complete the trial um, with, uh, with, with really you know, we, we would normally expect overall survival would take a long time, but in those trials, they, they were able to enroll the patients and they were able to do an interim analysis to show that there was a difference in overall survival fairly quickly. And uh, we also see some trials that um, even though they use response rate, um, some of the, and, um, uh, and that really took quite a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, the differences between these types of endpoints and how long am I complete trials uh, corresponding to each type of endpoint might be more similar than we think. Yeah, I think that's what really blew me away when you showed the sort of, even the raw data, when you look at the raw data, when you look at the multivariate data, the differences are less than what you'd think. They're certainly different than what I thought as sort of my gut inclination. They're certainly different than I think the rhetoric in this space. And you're saying it's something on the order of 11 months out of 7.3 years or 12% time savings. That's the kind of magnitude we're talking about. But we're not talking um, three years of time savings. We're not talking four years of time savings out of eight years of time. We're talking about you know about a year out of seven to eight years. And I think that puts things in perspective because that's kind of quantifying the trade-off. And I guess the other things I think about are um, that, um, you know, uh, so just one of the points that you're making, which is really eloquent, which is that drugs that really do improve overall survival, for instance, bortezomib in the original you know study in combination with MP against MP, VMP versus MP in transplanted ineligible myeloma patients, that showed OS benefits really, really quickly long before the median was reached, which is one of the things you hear bandied about, which is that, oh, well, we can never show um, you know, survival benefits in myeloma because the median survival is very long. But the thing about survival benefits is if you have a highly effective drug that improves OS, you don't need to wait for the median. And that was an example where uh, long before the median was reached, the OS benefit was known. Um, you know, The ability to find an OS benefit has to do with how good the drug is and the event rate. And, and, and sort of what you were looking at is the ability of trials to enroll patients, the speed at which they enroll, um, the line of therapy, which uses a surrogate for sort of lethality or event rates. Um, and so you did some sort of very elegant and complicated analysis to kind of tease this out. But I do think that that's the takeaway I walk away with, which is that the differences are less than you might imagine, which means that for the policymakers who have to step in and make that value calculation, I think this informs them. Um, you know, you don't have to answer the question about whether or not they should or should not be used in every situation. It's not your place. It's not my place. It's not one person's place. It's sort of a conversation that we're all having. But I, I have to give you a lot of credit for being the first person to put a number on something that people talk about rather vaguely. Um, and I think that's why it's such an important paper. And then I guess I'll give you the last word. But the last thing I think about is that 
I think for people out there who might read your paper and think about, you know, what if we demanded OS more often as a primary endpoint from clinical trials? I think that if you started to have that thought experiment in your mind, actually that's a really even more complicated thought experiment than kind of what you what you and I studied here. I think that's like this thought experiment that has a lot of sort of externalities. What do I mean by that? I guess I would say that when drug companies decide where to test their drugs initially, they're doing so in an environment that is permissive for using surrogate endpoints, very permissive and perhaps even getting more more permissive year by year. That helps them decide what indications to pursue initially. In the counterfactual world where OS is more often the de facto and uh, endpoint and more often the benchmark, companies may actually strategize differently. They may move drugs in in different lines of therapy. They may go after a different line first, run and prove survival benefit. Moving it up in lines of therapy might require trials with built-in crossover, as you know, I know you've studied another paper. I guess I want to say that you know I'm happy to flesh out what that thought experiment might look like, but I think it is a little bit more complicated. Um, I guess the last question I had for you is, um, you did all this work. It's clearly a provocative topic. Um, you clearly reached a conclusion that, let me ask you, when you set out to do this project, did you think it would be like this or did you think the differences would be bigger? What was your thought? Well, I think I think there were definitely a few surprises. Uh, I think one of, the th- one of the things we do recognize that in, in, in that there are cancer settings where the the condition may be fairly rare. And so no matter which endpoint that they use in the study, it's gonna take a long time. Um, but I think it's also to recognize that when there is a truly transformative drug or um, a cancer type or treatment setting where there is um, there is a great need because, um, because the survival is truly short, then in those settings, um, getting overall survival doesn't take very long in the study. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to if we do have a very good drug um, in a setting where it's very important, then it is not hard to run a randomized control trial with overall survival endpoint. Mm-hmm. And I think so, uh, you know, previous on this podcast, we've talked about venetoclax in uh, MDSAML in combination with AZA, and I've always said that they could just, you know, when you're talking about median survival on the order of seven, eight, nine months, you know, you don't need uncontrolled studies. You can simply answer that in a randomized fashion, but we'll leave that for another day. Emerson, uh, you're not, you're gonna be back soon. Listeners should know, there's more coming from Emerson Chen and his uh, amazing uh, uh, work and this database. He will be back and he'll be talking about many more topics, but we we shall not spoil those topics for now. Um, but um, um, I'm, I'm glad you were able to come here, tell us a little bit about what you did and what you found. I wanna thank you, um, thank your co-authors for the very hard work on this project. Um, are you ready to tell listeners where you're gonna be working next year or is it still is it still hush-hush? Well, I think um, it's. I think it's in the public. So it's I, in the public domain. Yeah. So let's hear it. Where will you be? Yeah, next I, year? I will be a. Uh, I'll, I'll be staying at OHSU as a fresh faculty member here. Fresh faculty, good. Um, uh, with a focus in GI cancers, but certainly in in um, in health services research and looking at the FDA approved approval process here uh, in the U.S. That's wonderful. I guess we're we're the lucky ones here to have you. We spent years indoctrinating you 
in terms of joining us. No, we spent <laughs> no, we spent years trying to woo you onto the faculty, and now we have succeeded. Our trap was set, and we have snared you. The ink is dry. Those contracts cannot be void, and you will be here. Um, and I think uh, it's uh, we're, we're lucky to have you. So so thanks so much for your work on this project. I know you have to run. Um, and uh, we'll have you back soon to discuss the next project, which is imminent. And I think we'll also, in, a, in its own way, um, dispel misconceptions and add data to a place where people thought they knew the answer, uh, but hadn't really uh, studied it and certainly had nothing to cite. So thank you, Emerson. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.